My sister is known to be a very strong woman. She's always spoken her mind um, to authorities and people around her. She doesn't suffer fools easily. And when she faces injustice, she definitely speaks against it. Personality is a complicated thing, and I don't, um, I don't really know exactly how she became that way. But I think one of the reasons might be that she, ha- she is the youngest in the family, and she's been loved by everyone in the family, and she's always known that if something goes wrong, somebody, will, somebody is behind her. Somebody will get her back. I still remember when I was in fourth grade, she was in second grade, she came running to my class. This is in Korea. This is unheard of. She runs out of the class and comes to my class, and apparently somebody said something really mean to her, and she was crying, and she was coming for her older brother. I was, I'm, I'm fairly small and puny now, but I was even skinnier and punier back then, and so I couldn't actually do anything to do much about it. And so at the recess time, I actually brought, I asked a couple of my big friends to come with me, and I threatened the boy with those uh, two guys with me. But I think my sister had this boldness um, to stand up to different people and bullies because she knew that somebody was always behind her. And I, I don't think that was all that different from Peter and John at this temple in chapter 4. They were able to stand up to the priests because they had God on their side. Verse 13 in chapter 4 um, tells us that they, they, he spoke with courage um, and how the authorities were amazed by their courage, but they were only amazed at their courage because their reality didn't involve God, the resurrected God on their side. When ordered not to preach the name of, in the name of Jesus, this was not an option for Peter and John because they knew Jesus was um, on their side. And this is what they said. Then they judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's eyes to obey you rather than God. Verse 19. It would be absurd to listen to the priest when God was on their side. And that seems to be what Peter and John focuses on when they return to the fellowship of the believers after their ordeal. Their prayer shows their incredulity at the high priests and Sadducees and the authorities. They can't believe that they are standing against God. So here are their prayers in in, in verse 24. Uh, In verse 24, they address God as sovereign Lord. Um, In Greek, it's literally despotes, despot, a dictator. The strongest word used to indicate one's all-encompassing power. This despot does his will and his will alone. Sovereign Lord, they say. And they say, you made the heavens and the earth and the seas and everything in in them. In their prayers, they remind themselves who God is. That God created heavens and the earth. Everything came into existence by the power of God's words. Things came to be when there was nothing before because God spoke. And as they start addressing that God, they cannot believe that the authorities are taking sides against God. They recall the opening words of Psalm 2. They quote Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage against uh, rage and people plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers uh, gather together against the Lord and against uh, uh, his only anointed one. 
despite the fact that they were imprisoned overnight, that they had been imprisoned overnight, verbally abused and threatened, they have no doubt in in their minds that they are on the winning side, that the authorities were on the wrong side. Why do they plot in vain? They asked. Why do they rebel against the Lord and his anointed one? They asked. Why do they continue to rebel against Christ? And that's what anointed one means, Christ, the Messiah. Their scheming is useless because they're scheming against God. No individual kings or rulers or their collective power can overthrow God's plans. And in their prayers, the apostles continue on recalling God's great power during the life of Jesus. So listen to what he says and what they say in verse 27. And 28. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. Just as was prophesied in, in, in Psalm, uh, Psalm 2, the kings of the earth conspire, uh, conspired against, against Jesus, the holy anointed one. In vain, they plotted against him, but we're told in verse 28, they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. This had been all planned. The, their plot conspiring against Jesus was part of God's plan of bringing his will to fruition. And that is real power, isn't it? When you can use the wills and the, the evil wills and evil intent of your enemies to bring about your will, to realize your intentions. This, uh, the story reminds me of Bobby Fischer, um, the, uh, the, one of the greatest chess players in the world. He was 13 years old when he played when, what the chess world calls the game of the century in 1956. Bobby had an IQ of 181 and great memory. It was said that he hated losing and he just learned not to cry um, after losing at the age of 13. And his opponents came wearing dapper suits and he showed up at the tournament of 11 of the best players in the world. Uh, he showed up in this colorless t-shirt and he came with his mom. He left with his mom. The New York Times article said that he looked as if he had came, he had a stickball game to go to after the match. But his opponent, Donald Byron, uh, was 26 year old, uh, one of the country's most uh, dangerous players. And in the middle of the match, so they started this match, in the middle of the match, Bobby offered the strongest piece on the board, his queen, for a bishop. He sacrificed his queen. I'll just read from New York Times. This is what the New York Times said. The audacity of such a move, especially coming from a 13-year-old and one that was met with murmurs by onlookers that day, seemed to signal the beginning of something very unexpected in the world and something terribly amiss for Byron. Even if he was a kid, he wouldn't just give away his queen, would he? When Byron took it, hoping he'd prevail in the complications that ensued it, he sealed his own fate by trading powers for position. Bobby unleashed his lesser pieces in precise cyclonic movements, a knight, a bishop, and then two rooks, opening files and sending Byron into the windmill of discovered checks while leaving his queen virtually shunted to the side. 
And this was the beauty of Bobby Fischer's mind. Even then, the boy made very clean, simple lines of, out of very complex problems. And when the trap was sprung, his style of chess became so transparent that you could instantly recognize its brilliance, efficiency, efficient, organic, widely responsive, and creative. This article um, goes on to conclude that when it was all done, it all looked simple, but also preordained. It looked simple and preordained. Fisher used Bayern's best intelligence and best moves against him. And he dismantled him in a methodical way that seemed preordained. Fisher sacrificed his queen, but for a purpose. Byron thought he was getting a gift, but he was walking into a trap. And that's how we know that Fisher was a boy genius, because he was able to use the, the, his opponent's best moves against him. It was part of the 13-year-old's plan. And you see, this is what they had recalled in their minds, that even as kings, pilots, and Pilate and King Herod conspired against Jesus. This is what God had preordained to do, to accomplish his mission. And this is something that God had done throughout the history. In the Old Testament, too, Joseph was sold, into, uh, sold as a slave, remember, by his brothers, sent to prison. Um, he was, uh, 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 Potiphar's wife uh, uh, accuses him of rape, and he's sent to prison. But this was all a part of Joseph rising to the second highest rank in the greatest empire of, of that day. And the Assyrian Empire, at the time the greatest kingdom um, in the region, when it was attacking uh, Israel, cursing Yahweh. The Bible tells us that they are they're being used by God to accomplish God's mission and God's plan. Same thing with Babylon. God was doing, uh, they're doing only God's will through their destruction of Israel. And as we're told in our story, once again, Pilate, kings of Herod, uh, King Herod are doing God's will. We're doing God's will. And when they uh, sentence Jesus to death, God can use even the most evil intentions of the enemies to accomplish his will. That's how powerful God is. And it's confident of this, the apostles could go out and proclaim the gospel with courage and boldness. God is controlling the history of the world, of moves of each individual. However powerful they might seem, they will eventually be frustrated by God or they will accomplish God's mission. Why do the nations rage and people plot in vain. That confidence will allow the early Christians to bear witness to Jesus, even in persecution that we talked about last week. In confidence, knowing that God will somehow bring that persecution into, into good, into a good. That through the persecution, God will use, um, uh, uh, God will use that situation to bring about His will. And so, do you have 
this confidence as you speak to your friends and family and your colleagues in your, in your life? When persecutions come, when cold shoulders come, when, uh, when people look down on you be- because of your faith, when your plans also don't seem to go your way, you've planned out the best uh, way to witness to your colleagues and family, but it just, they don't go your way. Do you know that God is actually in control over that situation as well? In some ways, that might be that situation that just might, that, that seems to be spiraling out of control. That God in some ways might use that situation to bring about salvation to your family and friends. Speak boldly. Because evangelism is part of God's plan. Mission is part of God's plan. This is something that God is accomplishing because God wants all people to be saved in the name of Jesus Christ. And don't despair in your setbacks, in your hardship, in the frustrated plans, in, in, in your frustrated plans, because God is behind you. Be confident and proclaim the gospel as you go. So after this, this outbreak of the first persecution in the early church, they gathered together to recall to their minds who God is and who, is by, who, who, uh, who was behind them. But it doesn't end there. The prayers continue for the present as well. So see uh, verses 29 and 30. They pray for boldness. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. And then in verse 30, they do something that I think we often um, are afraid of doing. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They ask God to perform signs and miracles, healings. In the name of Jesus Christ. And God seems to answer their prayers right away. As we see in verse 31. The place is shaken with God's presence. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they go out speaking the word of God boldly. And when you glance over to the next chapter. In chapter 5 verse 12. Luke tells us that the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. I think we need to pause and think about this just for a second. Taking cues from this, uh, this passage and other passages like this, some people believe that the last days should be filled with signs and wonders. The time in between the first and the second coming of Jesus, Jesus Christ should be filled with miracles all the time. That we should be casting out demons, healing the sick in the name of Jesus. Problems of our life, finances, businesses, uh, personal lives should be solved right away because of the power of God is with us. Because the power of the Holy Spirit is available to us. That we should experience God's power in, the, in our daily lives. So that's one camp, that we should be experiencing God's power all the time. The miracles should be happening all the time. The other camp, uh, some other Christians have taken this completely opposite view. Some people just think that the, the time of the Spirit has ended. It's not time of the church. 
But some people just live in the scientific age and they want to rationalize everything. I remember arguing with one of my seminary uh, friends who was saying that feeding of the 5,000 wasn't a miraculous thing, miraculous multiplication of the, of the bread as it was done in the, in, 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 um, in the desert wanderings of, of the Israelites. Um, that what she said, what she thought happened was that as Jesus shared the little food that they had, um, that everybody was touched by uh, the fact that Jesus was sharing this meager food. Everybody pulled out what they had packed and, and was handed out to everybody else. And it was the generosity she was arguing. Well, that was the miracle. That was a real miracle. And there are a lot of people who want to explain away miracles of the Bible that way. That, that we, we want scientific explanation for everything, and we think that, uh, that miracles don't happen um, in this world. I think both views are not so biblical. The second is obviously wrong. Surely God does miracles. In fact, the whole world, if you think about it, how deep the miracles go, really the whole world is a miracle. God could have made the whole world differently with the different building blocks of life. I mean, it doesn't have to be the atoms and, and, um, um, atoms and quarks and dark matter and there's the theory that these vibrating strings are the building blocks building blocks of life. God didn't have to make the world in this way. God made the world in this way and set the rules um, as he saw fit. The whole world could have been different. I guess what I'm saying is that he made the world and he also made the rules that govern this world. Of course, God can intervene and do things that are against the rules. He's the one who made the rules. Scientists merely discover the laws of nature. They don't set the rules, uh, set the laws of nature. And, and, and because God created them and sustains them, he can sometimes break them, uh, break these laws if it suits his purpose. The other view, that our lives should be filled with miracles all the time, supernatural events all the time, I think that makes the mistake of thinking that the kingdom of God has more or less fully arrived on earth already. That the end time reality that we will experience in the future has already come fully. However, when we read the Bible, this is not true. And actually, this isn't true of our experience either. God has made the world in a certain way, and for the most part, he will leave us be with those rules. And also, this world has fallen and is filled with sin as well, and we will not experience the fullness of the creation, how the creation how it was intended to be uh, until Jesus comes back and brings about new creation over this world. We're told that the apostles did many miracles in chapter 5, but we're also told that really Peter did three main miracles in his life. In his life, We saw one in chapter 4, the lame man walking. In chapter, uh, uh, chapter 6, there's the striking of Ananias and Sapphira. And also in chapter 9, there's the rise, raising of Tabitha from death. 
those three, I don't know how many years Peter lived, but those are the only three miracles recorded in, in, in Peter's lifetime, the chief apostle's lifetime. If you think about his life, he too was imprisoned. He too suffered sickness. He too suffered persecution. He too died in the Colosseum under persecution. God did many, many miracles through the apostles, but they were still miracles. Events that don't take place every day. They weren't the norm even in the early church. But I still want to affirm, as we think about this, that God still does miracles, even today. Even in this scientific age, even in the age where everybody wants to explain away miracles, God does miracles. And we can and should pray that God will intervene in our lives in this way. But as we go, did you notice, though, um, what Peter linked this request of miracles with? Before verse 30, there was verse 29. Now consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. It was for the sake of declaring the name of Jesus Christ that they asked for, for, the, for these miracles. They didn't ask for their selfish gains, for God to make their life easier. They didn't ask, uh, they asked for the signs and wonders so that God, um, uh, so that they could proclaim the name of Jesus more boldly, so that the Son of God, the Anointed One, will be made known to the people around them, that these miracles would continue to embolden them to proclaim Jesus in the face of persecution from the ones who needed a lot of persuading. So first, God is on your side, um, and greater than all the oppositions combined. And secondly, God is powerful today, and God can do miracles today. And if we truly believe this and live our lives, I think it will also transform our worship together, our time on Sundays together. As I, was, as I was reading this, I was struck by the fact that apostles came to believe to the, to the believers after they had experienced God's power during the week. And I think we often do the opposite. If we're honest, we want to experience God on Sundays. We want to experience God uh, uh, in our worship, in, in, in the preaching, in, in hearing uh, from God's word, in our prayers. Because Monday through Saturday, we live our secular lives and we want to come and be recharged. We think of our lives as these rechargeable batteries that gets drained during the week that needs to be recharged on Sundays. I think that's partly because we have unhealthily divided our time um, as secular and divine, secular and holy. But this isn't biblical thinking. There isn't, there isn't this divide between secular and divine. In time, all time is sacred. All the world is God's. All your work is God's work. Monday through Saturday is God's time. uh, Monday through Saturday is the time when you should be experiencing the work of God, the miracles of God, big and small. The time when you're writing your reports is just as divine and holy as your time of prayer this Sunday. So, Listen to uh, verse 23. It's because they experienced God 
that week, they cannot contain their excitement to meet with uh, other worshipers together. Verse 23, on their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all the chief, all that the chief apostles and elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they raised their voices together in, in their prayer. They couldn't wait to go and meet with other believers. They couldn't wait to tell people what God had done that week. And there was fervency in their prayer. There were genuineness in their praise. There were celebrations of what God has done through them because they lived out their Christian life during the week. And Sabbath worship, I think Sunday worship that is set aside, we do come together. We do come together, and that is important. But imagine what our life would be if, if you experienced God Monday through Saturday and you came together on Sunday to celebrate what God has done in your life during the week. And that, I think, is the, uh, a foretaste of our Sabbath rest that Book of Hebrews promises to us. That is the foretaste of heaven, the end time, the new creation, the new creation in heaven, when we think about heaven, it won't be just sitting around and doing nothing and singing songs. It won't be like that. It's the fullness of time. It's the perfection of time when all that we do every day will be in perfect relationship with God, relationship with each other, um, relationship with ourselves, um, in perfect relationship with the whole creation. That will be heaven. That's what Sabbath rest is all about. And you can experience that during the week. The fullness of God's power worked out in your life during the week. And as we come together on Sundays, it will transform our worship together. So as we end, I pray that we will speak the name of Christ boldly during the week, Monday through Saturday, knowing that Jesus is behind us, that Jesus is with us, that even the worst intentions of the people who want to stop us from speaking, even the worst of situations that seems to be going out of our control, spiraling out of our control, that God can somehow use that to bring glory to himself and to the people around us. But also, I pray that we will experience then, as we speak God's name, God's power, in small and big things in our life, Monday through Saturdays. And I pray that when we meet next week in our worship on Sundays, our worship will be a celebration of what you have experienced during the week in your work, in your family life, in all of our relationships. And I pray that as we come together and worship God in that way, that people who enter this church will be swept up in our collective praise of God. And this room will be filled with the Holy Spirit and shake with God's glory. Amen.